to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Mark, chapter 11, verse 1, as we follow along with today's lesson. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. We know that is a prophecy concerning Jesus. He was to be refused by the builders, by the leaders of the nation, yet he he is to become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And then this is the day that the Lord has made. The day that the stone will be refused. The king who will come in the name of the Lord will be rejected. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Rejoice, O Jerusalem. Shout for joy, ye daughters of Zion. Behold, your king cometh. The word save now, verse 29, in the Hebrew that is Hosanna. It is not translated in the New Testament, but just given in the Hebrew as they began to quote this psalm, Hosanna, or save now, that's what Hosanna means. I beseech thee, O Lord, O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, which has showed us the light. And then it's interesting, he goes on to say, bind the sacrifice with cords, even under the horns of the altar. And talking about the sacrifice, which Jesus, of course, was to accomplish before this week is over. This is the day that the Lord has made. In Daniel Chapter 9, as the angel Gabriel instructed Daniel concerning the future of the nation of Israel and of the holy city of Jerusalem, he declared to Daniel that there were 77s that were determined upon your people and upon the holy city. Verse 24, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity. Now that's exactly the purpose of Jesus in coming, is to make the reconciliation for iniquity. To make an end of sins, to complete the transgression, finish the transgression, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecies, and to anoint, the most holy. 
And then he said, Know therefore and understand. From the time the commandment goes forth to restore and rebuild Jerusalem will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. And the walls shall be built again, even in troublous times. But after the sixty-two sevens shall the Messiah be cut off, but not for himself, or not received for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof will be with a dispersion, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. From the time the commandment goes forth to restore and rebuild Jerusalem unto the coming of the Messiah, the prince, there would be 69 sevens, or 483 years. The commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem was given by King Artaxerxes to Nehemiah on the 14th of March, 445 B.C. And exactly to the day, 173,880 days after the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, Jesus made this entry into Jerusalem on a donkey. Even as the psalmist indicated, save now, but then bind the sacrifice with cords unto the altar. Even as Daniel prophesied, but the Messiah will be cut off. So Jesus was not accepted as the Messiah, but was refused by the builders but God has made him the chief cornerstone. So, so much prophecy is, is tied up in this particular day. This is the day that the Lord has made. And Jesus, notice very carefully, sets the events of the day in order that there might be the complete fulfillment of the prophecies concerning this day. Now, it was evening. They were coming into Bethany, Bethany, during the probably morning hours. They prepared the uh, little donkey. Jesus descended. Mark doesn't tell us anything about his weeping over Jerusalem. But he descended the Mount of Olives riding the little donkey amidst the shouts of the disciples, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The other gospels tell us that the Pharisees said to Jesus, rebuke your disciples. That's blasphemous. And Jesus responded, I tell you the truth, if they would hold their peace, these very stones would cry out. I've picked up a few stones along that path, and I wondered if they happened to be there when Jesus came by. And had they been there and had the disciples held their peace, these would have been the stones that would have been crying out. Chesterton has, has written a, uh, I think he called it an ode to the donkey. And it goes something like this. When fishes flew and forest walked and figs grew upon a thorn, some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born. 
with monstrous head and sickening cry and ears like errant wings, the devil's walking parody of all four-footed things. The ancient outlaw of the earth with stubborn, tattered will mock me, scourge me. I am dumb, but I hold my secrets still. Fools, I also had my hour One far swift hour and sweet I heard the shouts about my ears And there were palm branches under my feet Jesus, King of Kings Lowly Making his entry on a donkey How unlike the earthly potentates. I can imagine that the Romans who were there, who had perhaps seen the triumphant marches into Rome when the Roman legions would come back with the trophies of war, I imagine there was just sort of snickering as they saw this motley crowd and this man sitting on a donkey entering the city. Surely he was no threat to Rome, but he was a tremendous threat to the religious leaders. Now, this is on Sunday. On Monday, verse 12, Jesus returned to the temple. And on the morrow, Monday, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if by chance, he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. Of course, this is Passover time. It's the month of April. And it really isn't the time for figs yet. It is interesting concerning a fig tree, though, that the little figs usually come out before the leaves. You'll find little figs upon the tree before the leaves come out. And there is what they call the first ripe figs. And the first ripe Figs are the tastiest of the figs. If you have a fig tree that uh, has its first ripe figs, they're usually larger, tastier. Uh, The fig tree doesn't really bear its fruit until about uh, August, September. But the first ripe figs are usually ripe sometime in the end of May, 1st of June, here in the States. Uh, But Uh, Over there, they have a little earlier season as a general rule. Uh, It could be possible that there would be some fruit on it, not very edible at this point. I think that the cursing of the tree is so out of character with Jesus that we have to look at it as being Though it was literal, I mean, I'm not saying that it was just a symbolic thing. He literally cursed the tree, and the tree literally died overnight. But yet I think that the cursing of it 
was a symbolic action in which he was talking about the nation or illustrating the condition of the nation of Israel which was failing to bring forth the fruit that God desired. And because of its failure to bring forth fruit unto the Lord, the nation was to wither and die. The fig tree is used in a typological sense for the nation of Israel a couple of times in the Old Testament. Uh, at the destruction of Jerusalem, God lamented, they have barked my fig tree. And uh, in Jeremiah, uh, the basket of rotten figs, irrecoverably rotten, to be thrown out. In another parable concerning a tree that did not bear fruit, the Lord said that the master ordered the tree cut down, but the caretaker said, oh, give me one more year. Let me cultivate around it. Let me fertilize it and see if I can't, you know, produce some fruit next year. And so God's long-suffering and God's patience with the nation of Israel, waiting for it to bring forth fruit. But it's failure bringing then the curse, the withering and the dying of the nation. So I see this action of Jesus as a symbolic action to teach the disciples the important lesson of bringing forth fruit. In the Old Testament, when Isaiah lamented uh, for God concerning uh, the vineyard, in which God planted, and he came, came time to gather the fruit, but there was nothing but wild grapes. So the vineyard was let go. Uh, again, a, a type of the nation of Israel where God is seeking fruit and finding none deserts it. Now, that should speak to us. For Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. And he indicated that it is God's desire and God's purpose that our lives bring forth fruit unto the Lord. As a church, we are to bring forth fruit. And Paul tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love. It is interesting that when Jesus addressed the churches in the book of Revelation, his complaint against the church of Ephesus was not its lack of works. It had plenty of that. But it was their lack of love. And his threat to them was that if they did not come back to this first love, his presence would be removed from the church. He wouldn't stay around a loveless Church, And what a warning and what a lesson that should be to us. Oh God, may your love ever flow forth from this church, from this place. 
When people enter in, Lord, may they always have that sense of, of love, your love, flowing forth from us. And Lord, when you come and dwell among your people, may you find the fruit that you are looking for as you come to your garden to enjoy. Lord, may our lives be fruitful. Bring forth fruit. And so the fig tree was cursed. And Jesus said unto it, No man eat fruit of you hereafter forever. And his disciples heard him. I wonder what they thought. That's a little weird talking to a tree. (laughs) And so here on Monday still, they came into Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple And he began to cast out those that sold and bought in the temple. He overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And he would not allow that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. The temple had become almost a marketplace. The people there hawking the sacrificial animals, the money changers, and people passing through, carrying their stuff, taking a shortcut through the temple. Now, when you brought a sacrifice, it could not have any blemish or it would be rejected. You weren't to offer to God anything with blemishes, only that which was perfect. And so when a person would bring a lamb or a dove or a sacrifice, the priest would always examine it to make sure it had no imperfections. And if you did not have the little certified by the rabbi stickers, (laughs) then they would look until they could find some imperfection and they would reject it and force you to pay these inflated prices for these certified sacrifices. And thus the people were being gouged when they are wanting to come and bring a sacrifice to God. It was an extortion kind of a thing. And here Jesus is angry. And he drives them out. You could only give to God temple shekels. They considered the Roman currency as unclean. And you could not give it to God, but you had to only give him temple shekels. And that's the reason for the money changers. They were there to take your Roman coins and to give you the temple shekels in exchange with a 20% exchange fee. So again, racketeering, profiting off of people's desire to worship God. This innate desire within man to worship God. They had found ways to capitalize on it merchandise it 
And Jesus, in casting them out, quoted Isaiah 56, 7. And he said unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? And then quoting Jeremiah 7, 11, he said, But you have made it a den of thieves. God's house should be a house of prayer. They made it a den of thieves, profiteering. And the scribes and the chief priest heard him, and they sought how they might destroy him, but they feared the people, because the people were astonished at his doctrine. And when the even was come, he went out of the city. So on Sunday, he made his triumphant entry. On Monday, he goes in and he cleanses the temple of the merchandising and and of the desecration. Now, in the morning, this would be Tuesday, verse 20, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, said unto him, Master, look, the fig tree which you cursed, it's withered away. Amazed that so quickly was that tree withered. And how quickly the nation of Israel is to be withered. And Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God. So he uses this as an example to teach them of the potential and the power of faith. For verily he said, I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed. Be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now, there are those who say that Jesus is not making a reference to literal mountains, that uh, the rabbis often referred to difficulties that a person experienced in life as the mountains of difficulty. It doesn't really matter. The principle is there. The principle of faith. And then Jesus went on to say, Therefore I say unto you, What things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. Now, remember, first of all, who Jesus is talking to. Because there are those who have taken this passage of Scripture and rested it as a excuse for indulging your flesh and your desires that you can have anything you want. And they usually 
interpret that or translate that into gold chains around your neck and big diamonds on your fingers and uh, fancy sports cars and a home on Lido Island. And they have made a sad travesty of this promise of Jesus. As I said, first of all, note who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to Peter and to the disciples who are amazed that the fig tree withered so fast. What did it take to become a disciple? Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Very first requirement. Now, those that take this as a promise to indulge yourself are taking it completely wrong. This isn't saying that you can just indulge yourself in any kind of a luxury you want if you just believe. Put the principle of faith into operation and say it. (laughs) The rima. Power of the spoken word. And be careful what you say. Don't say anything negative. Because you'll have whatever you say. And if you're making negative confessions, then dire things will happen to you. It'll come to pass. You see, your words have creative force and power. And all of this malarkey. (laughs) There's a vast difference, as we all know, between men and women. Now, there's some people that don't know that, but we know that. (laughs) A vast difference. And a woman moves on a much uh, broader spectrum than a man. Man is coarse. He moves on a narrow spectrum. You know, we can't get very excited and we can't get very sad. I mean, just sort of, you know, right in there. But a woman capable of much higher highs and actually capable of deeper lows. So I might go into a room and say, it's cold in here. My wife goes in and said, I'm freezing to death. (laughs) I'm glad she doesn't have what she says. I might say, I'm hungry. She says, I'm starving to death. They shall have whatsoever they say. (laughs) Negative confessions. Look out, you know. No, that's 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 taking things totally out and away from context. Jesus isn't giving you a blank check and saying, fill it in. Indulge yourself. Go out and you know indulge your lust. Whatever you desire. No, he's talking to his disciples who have denied themselves to take up the cross and follow him. He is the example. And we're following him. So that our desires then are really his desires because we have submitted to him as Lord. And I do not and should not desire anything apart from his desires. So if you will sort of stamp over the top of it, put the stamp 
deny self, take up the cross and follow me, then you see the promise in its proper perspective. This promise is made to men who have denied themselves, who have taken up the cross to follow Jesus. And to those people, this is a glorious promise. You can see the will of God and you can see the work of God wrought in your heart, in your life, in the lives of those around you because you have made this total commitment unto him as Lord. Now, when you pray, when you stand praying, some people kneel praying, some people lie down praying. Surely it isn't the position of the body that matters, it's the position of the heart. When you stand praying, forgive. If you have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Your forgiveness, Jesus is teaching, opens the door for the Father to forgive you. That's how important it is for you to forgive. It opens the door for God to forgive you. So when you stand praying, if there comes into your mind one that you have ought against, forgive them that your Father might forgive you. You see, as a general rule, when we stand praying, we're there seeking forgiveness. And so the importance of forgiving. And then Jesus stresses it. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. That's how important it is. You say, well, then, does that make salvation a thing of works? I don't know, but all I know is that you better forgive. I don't want to diminish or modify the words of Jesus. I don't know how that lines up with God's grace in salvation. But all I know is that this is the teaching of Jesus, plain and simple, and I don't want to be guilty of taking away from it. I would never want to be guilty of comforting someone who is not obeying the word of Christ and giving them false comfort and false hope. This is what Jesus has said. It's serious. It's important that you forgive. It opens the door for God to forgive you. And if you don't forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. That is heavy, but that's just how important it is. This isn't the only time that Jesus has said this. In Matthew's Gospel... Chapter 6, as Jesus is speaking about our righteousness, how it should be done before the Lord, 
And when you pray, just go into the closet and shut the door and so forth. And then he said, this is the manner, therefore, in which you should pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And then Jesus said, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now that's very straight, plain teaching. And Jesus then gave illustrations to illustrate what he meant. There was a certain king who was taking an account of his affairs. He found a servant, owed him $16 million. And he called him in and demanded payment. And he said, I can't pay you. And he said, throw him into prison. And the servant began to cry and begged him, saying, Please, give me a little time and I, and I will try to pay you. And so he forgave the servant that enormous debt. He in turn, though, that servant went out and got a fellow servant that owed him $16, grabbed him by the throat and said, you paid me. And when he was unable to do so, he had him thrown into the debtor's prison. And the other servants, when they saw it, felt bad, and they reported to the king. You remember that fellow you forgave the 16 million bucks? He had a fellow servant thrown in jail just the other day for $16 debt. And so the king called him in, and he said, you wicked servant. Didn't I forgive you a great debt? How is it that I hear you've had a fellow servant thrown into prison for a small debt to you and he ordered him thrown into prison until the entire debt was paid and the whole idea is look how much God has forgiven you we need to be forgiving how often shall I forgive my brother the same offense seven times no Peter 70 times seven. it's not a thing of mathematics It's just the spirit of forgiveness that we're to have. Now, as we pointed out this morning, to hold on to an unforgiving spirit, to hold on to these offenses, to remain bitter, angry, resentful, is damaging to you. Not just spiritually, as Jesus points out. It doesn't just shut off the forgiveness from you, but it is damaging to you emotionally. Those attitudes, that spirit of of anger and, and just uptightness creates bad chemistry, which is destructive to your body and to you mentally. So emotionally, physically, spiritually, so important. 
to forgive. And so they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, this is on Wednesday now, he, or no, this would be Tuesday. Monday he cleansed it. He comes back Tuesday. The fig tree is withered and all. So this happens Tuesday. When he came again into Jerusalem, as he was walking in the temple, there came to him the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. I believe Wednesday was when he had the Passover supper with the disciples and Wednesday night and Thursday crucified. Uh, We'll get to that later. You say, well, Good Friday, well, try and get three days and three nights between Good Friday and Sunday morning, and you've got some problems. So he had come again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, there came to him the chief priests, scribes, and elders. I mean, here comes this whole, you know, religious body. I mean, these are the guys that, you know, you've intruded into our territory. And they said unto him, By what authority do you do these things? And who gave you the authority to do them? These fellows were always looking (laughs) for the authority. When John the Baptist was baptizing and the people were coming, they came out to John and they said, Who gave you the authority to baptize? When I met with one of the leaders of the Mormon church, that was his question. Who gives these young men the authority to go out there and minister in these churches? Who gave Raul Reese the authority to hold a meeting over here in San Gabriel? Who ordained him? I told him, well, God ordains God is the one that gave the authority. Jesus is the one that gave the command to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Uh, The authority comes from God. Now, they're asking Jesus, who gave you the authority? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. My question, and I'll answer yours. (laughs) I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. My question is the baptism of John. Was it from heaven or was it from men? Answer me. And they got to reasoning among themselves and they said, hmm, if we say from heaven... Then he's going to say, why didn't you then believe him? If we say his baptism was of men, then all the people will be upset with us because they think John was a prophet. Well, they said, uh, we can't answer your question. Just said, all right, neither do I answer yours. So he silenced them. (laughs) Let's turn now in our Bibles to the gospel according to Mark, and we're in chapter 12 this evening. Jesus has just run headlong into the religious leaders 
as he came into the temple and uh, drove out the money changers and got rid of those who were uh, commercializing uh, the temple. And uh, so they came to him and they asked him who gave him the authority to do those things and uh, by what authority he did them and who gave him the authority. And uh, he uh, answered with a proposition, I'll answer your question if you'll answer my question. John's baptism, was it of God or was it of man? And they reason among themselves, if we say it was of God, then he'll say, why didn't you believe him and follow him? And if we say of man, then the people will turn against us because they're convinced John was a prophet. They said, well, we can't answer you. And he said, well, touche, neither do I answer you. So as he is now still, this is still this confrontation with them. You're still in the, the midst of this confrontation. And he began to speak unto them, that is, the religious leaders, the scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees. He began to speak to them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard, set a hedge about it, digged a place for the wine fat, or vat, actually, in modern English. And he built a tower. He let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. Now, in Isaiah chapter 5, he uses the parable of a vineyard the vineyard representing the nation of Israel and how that God planted the finest plant, how he put protection around it, how he did everything to ensure wonderful fruit, had built the wine press in it, had put the wall around it to protect it, and how that in developing it with the finest vine and all, yet when it came time to bear fruit, it only bore wild grapes. And so the judgment was he was just going to break down the walls, take away the protection, allow the vineyard to just go wild and to be trodden down. Uh, it failed to bring forth the fruit that God was seeking. Now, when Jesus again uses a vineyard in a parable, uh, there is in the um, study of the scriptures what they call expositional consonance. And that is when in a parable a vineyard is used of a nation, Israel, Whenever the vineyard then is used in parabolic form, it again, the expositional constancy would say that it is always Israel, the nation of Israel that is being referred to. So as Jesus brings up the vineyard once again, they would immediately identify the nation of Israel as the vineyard. It was led out to husbandmen. They would be the ones who were to nurture and to care for the vineyard in order to ensure that the vineyard brought forth good fruit. Their responsibility uh, to keep the vineyard and uh, to develop it, to cultivate it, 
that it might bring forth good fruit. Now, there was a certain man planted the vineyard and set the hedge around it. In other words, he established this vineyard. And when the time came that uh, he should uh, reap the fruit of the vineyard, and as a general rule, uh, when you had an absentee owner, uh, he was entitled to 50% of the uh Produce that came from the vineyard. And uh, so the time came for uh, the owner to get his 50%, and it could not be collected until the fifth year. Uh, the time came for uh, the owner to receive the fruit. And so he sent a servant uh, unto the husbandman to gather for him or to get for him the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. And again he sent unto them another servant, and him they cast stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully handled. And again he sent another, and him they killed. And many others beating some, killing some. And having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. Now, of course, the servants that were sent were the prophets. And for the most part, uh, the, the office of a prophet was a hazardous uh, position in Israel. Uh, in fact, in uh, Stephen's defense before the council, uh, as he got into the rehearsing of their history, uh, he was showing them how that traditionally their fathers had rejected God's plan. How that when Joseph was rejected by his brothers, they said, you know, we bow down and serve you? Are you kidding? That'll never happen. And yet, they sold him as a slave, but still in the end, they did bow down and do obeisance to him according to the dream that he had. But they rejected him the first time around. Second time around, they acknowledged the position that the Lord had placed him in. Moses when Moses first came to the people, they rejected Moses from ruling over them. And Moses fled and spent 40 years in the wilderness. The second time around, they recognized that God had ordained Moses to lead them out of their slavery in Egypt. And as Stephen was getting into it, of course, he was building up to Jesus first time around, You've killed him, but he's coming back again. You'll recognize that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's building to that. But before he could actually get to the punchline of his message, he was so into how blind they were. He said, which of the prophets have not your fathers stoned? Name a prophet who came out unscathed. Those men who dared to speak God's truth unto the people. And so here Jesus is 
pretty much saying the same thing. The prophets that God had sent to the nation of Israel were mistreated, imprisoned, beaten, many of them killed. In the book of Hebrews chapter 11, it tells us about the suffering of the servants of God, those men of faith how they were imprisoned, how they were stoned, how they were sawn asunder, men of whom the world was not worthy, and how they were mistreated by the world and by the nation of Israel. So all of this succession of prophets have been pretty well badly treated by the nation. God is still desiring fruit, and so he said, well, My beloved son, I'll send him. Surely they will reverence him. Now, here Jesus puts himself in a far different category than the prophets. There are always those today that would like to reduce Jesus to one of the prophets. Uh, In fact, uh, Mohammed uh, declares that Jesus was just one of the prophets uh, in a succession of prophets. And there are many people that buy into this line. He's just one of a succession of prophets that God had sent. But notice how Jesus puts himself in a far different category. Finally, he said, my beloved son, I will send him. Surely they will reverence him. But the husbandmen said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. Now, Pilate knew when they brought Jesus before him that it was a conspiracy, that they were jealous of Jesus and fearful that Jesus would replace them. The high priest had said, don't you realize it's, it's necessary that one should die in order that we might save our position in the nation? They, they said, behold, how all of the people are going after him. We're going to have to do something about this or else they're going to take away our, our power, our position. And so this basically, Jesus is sort of basically showing them what they have already determined that he is a threat to them, a danger to them, and thus he has to, in their mind, be destroyed, lest they lose their authority and their power and their hold over the people. This is the heir. Let's kill him. And then the vineyard will be ours we'll be able to continue our control and power over the nation. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Mark in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on the parable of the vineyard. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Mark 11 through 12 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. 
You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD, and our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, this issue of prayer and forgiveness, help us. Help us just now, Lord, and free us, Lord, from any ought that we might be holding against anybody for anything. May we not hang on to that bitterness any longer, but Lord, set us free, that we might bring forth fruit, Lord, the fruit of love, kindness, tenderheartedness, as we forgive one another, even as you, Lord, for Christ's sake, forgave us. Oh God, ferret out any resentment that we might hold. As David, we would ask you, Lord, to search us and to know our hearts. Try us, Lord, and know our thoughts and see if there is anything there, Lord, any root of bitterness, any anger that would keep back our experiencing the full work of your love and forgiveness in our lives. Oh, Lord, set your people free. In Jesus' name. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. I feel we are so close to the end. I have never seen so many signs that point to the end. Our country is in the worst mess it's ever been in. I said to Chuck, what can we do? Our life is given to the ministry, to the salvation of souls and the walk of Christians, and yet we can't seem to make a dent. Chuck, do you think it's because the Lord is coming soon and maybe there's going to be one last revival? Hey, ladies, I would like to highly encourage you to pick up a copy of Kay Smith's new book, Colossians, the most recent addition to her Bible study series. Like the believers in Paul's day, today we live in the midst of cultural craziness and we too are vulnerable to the quick fix 
Catholic solutions of world philosophers and religious legalists. Let Kay guide you through the book of Colossians to understand how the Lord wants you to live in these last days, to love your family, and to revive our nation. To order a copy for yourselves or a friend, please call the Word for Today at 1-800-272-9673. Or to see a sneak preview, visit us online at thewordfortoday.org.